Once you can identify where the risks are, though, once you can identify what the biochemistry looks like, you can jump on that, so to speak. You can actually do something to help protect and support their continued development versus continued decline. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. 2020 statistics by the CDC now estimate that 1 in 54 children in the United States are born with autism spectrum disorder. That's 1 in 37 boys and 1 in 151 girls. Epidemiological studies estimate a global prevalence of 1 in 132 children. This makes autism the fastest growing developmental disability in the world. Why is this? What's going on in our environment? And more specifically, how are our genes interacting with our environment that would cause such an exponential rise? In this week's episode, I've brought back Dr. Judith Bowman of Mensa Medical to talk about the underlying causes of this multifactorial condition. We talk again about the role folic acid plays in the in utero environment, gut inflammation and high oxidative stress, as well as copper's impact on the brain and body. Dr. Judith Bowman co-founded Mensa Medical in 2008 with her colleague, Dr. Albert Mensa. Dr. Bowman combines traditional medicine with a biochemical approach to treating behavioral and cognitive disorders, autism spectrum disorder, depression, including postpartum depression and women's health, anxiety, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and other biochemical imbalances. Dr. Bowman has treated over 30,000 patients using all-natural, non-pharmaceutical, targeted nutrient therapy, trains physicians in advanced nutrient therapy techniques, and facilitates outreach clinics all over the United States. Welcome, Dr. Bowman. It is great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure to be here, of course. Dr. Bowman, can you start us off with what is autism? You know, we need to start with that. We do. Let's just kind of talk about what really happens in the brains of an autistic person. There seems to be kind of a suspended animation of development. Brain cells are produced and developed from the top to the bottom and from the bottom to the top, and somehow they're supposed to meet in the middle. In autism, sometimes that connection doesn't quite match up. It really doesn't. Believe it or not, when the brain is developed, there are actually tubes that are supposed to connect somewhere in the middle. And that finishes the brain actually talking to each other, talking to itself, I should say, as well as networking with other processes and places in the brain. If that doesn't happen appropriately, if those connections are really not met, then sometimes you get a disconnect. And so processing becomes an issue. When that happens, really the question is, why does that happen? Very often there is what you call um, oxidative stress somewhere in the development of a child, you know, in the fetal state, or even sometimes mm. later, there could often be some oxidative stress, meaning that the fetus is under great stress for whatever is the problem. It might be a problem with mom having stress in and of herself, or it may just be a genetic predisposition towards at risk for certain stresses to take place. So Mm -hmm. when that happens, that creates what you would call a high risk factor for slower development of brain processes. And part of the physiologic or really 
physical things that are going on. It's this not meeting of the brain connecting to itself when the development is from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. So you get this, what you call suspended animation. And so the child is born and obviously they're not able to really connect the way they need to in terms of, um, say, emotional development, as well as sensory processing. Um, and even they are impaired relative to how they manage biochemical imbalances. And so when you have that, you get a recipe that really states that, oh, there may be some learning disabilities. There may be some autistic-like tendencies that are going to happen. There may be some issues regarding um, how they're going to interact socially because the brain isn't talking to itself from a whole comprehensive standpoint and the signals are not being relayed appropriately. Then you have what's called a diagnosis of autism or somewhere on the spectrum. And even this word, uh, a spectrum, most people kind of understand what that means. There is a, a level of intensity, a level of um, impairment that is not equal throughout. So it can come from, if you want to call it that, a little bit of autism to really major difficulties with sensory processing, processing and emotional processing and the rest of that. The spectrum comes in is when did this lack of development, slower development uh, happen? And so to what extent did that happen? And that usually tells or at least defines where someone is on the spectrum. Mm, great. Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate you breaking that down for us. And I'm curious for parents, what are some common symptoms that they can be looking for that there might be a delay or an impairment in that regard? You know what? Really, most parents say generally the same thing. They're looking at their child 24-7 to see what is going on with them. They very often have had children before, and they're saying, it seems like I've heard this so many times, these words, this child just doesn't seem like they're with us, like there's mm. no real connection there. When they see us, there's something in the eyes that says they're not really comprehending that there's a connection. They're not really hearing. They're not really responding in a manner that I think is appropriate for this age. And there seems to be something lacking in the, the human, if you want to call it connection. You know, it's a hard way to really explain it, but the connection just doesn't seem to be there. You know, as if you can look in someone's eyes and say, you know, you're really connecting with me. I can feel that you're understanding what's going on. Even if you can't really verbalize that, I kind of feel like your responses are appropriate. Well, the, the responses are very often what you would call inappropriate or lacking. Mm. And so a parent, particularly those that have had children before, are, are relaying the message that this child is different. He doesn't seem to be responding even in eye contact and I'm not sure that they're actually there just yet. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. I think it's often, as you're describing, an intuitive kind of inner knowing discernment because this is your child and right. you can tell when there isn't a connection. Of course, there's, if, you know, anyone can go online and Google you know, signs of autism and they'll have a long list of things that mm -hmm. may or may not apply, of course. But I think that intuitive knowing that mm, something just feels a little off here mm -hmm. developmentally and cognitively, I think is, is really powerful. Dr. Bowman, I'm curious, why is autism on the rise? You already touched on the oxidative stress piece that we'll right. get into. There's the environmental insults, the epigenetics. I'd love it if you could speak into why autism is on the rise. 
Very interesting. A lot of theories. We have some thoughts ourselves here at Minson Medical. One of the thoughts is, what are we doing? Uh, not that we want to blame ourselves, but obviously something is going on that we are doing that's a little bit different than what has happened in the past. Now, we can speak to things like oh, environmental changes. We can. We can talk about the food chain. We can talk about GMOs. We can talk about what are the recommendations once you get pregnant. There's more and more evidence leading to what may be at least contributing. And so where I want to go with that, uh, not dancing around the bush here, we've all been asked, and this is going to be a controversial subject, it really is, we've all been asked to do certain things before you're pregnant, while you're pregnant. Okay, what does that entail? Most of us realize that if we can at least provide ourselves with a good nutritional balance, Yes. This is going to be a good thing. This is going to result in a child that's going to have a chance. Probably good for me as well, you know, in terms of our dietary choices and whatnot. But what are we mm -hmm. all told? We're all told, you know, and we need to do this. Here's, here's the thing. We actually need to do this. We need to think about giving ourselves a reasonable amount of folic acid exposure, meaning that you may supplement. You're going to take your prenatal vitamins, which is a good thing. And for the most part, Absolutely. I would never negate the fact that the um, intake of folic acid, whether it's dietary or supplemental, is going to be very, very important in the development of this child. It's going to help this child not to have neural tube defects. I think yes. there's enough research out there to support that whole hog. No doubt that is the case. The question is, how much is enough and how much is too much? There have been some studies by Harvard. There have been some studies by, I think, John Hopkins and a few other places that say that, you know, adequate is enough. Too much may be problematic. Okay, so why yes. does that matter? What the heck is going on? I mean, even myself, I can't remember a time when I was not told to do it myself or uh, have somebody else take folic acid if you're thinking about pregnancy, if you're early in pregnancy, because that'll reduce neural tube defects. Nobody wants those. The spine, the brain, central development needs to happen, and you don't need problems. Folic acid, folic acid, any form of folic acid or folate, so to speak, helps that the development of neural tube defects not to happen. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So the question is really, how long should you do that? Somewhere between three and four months of pregnancy, this is a really good thing to have on board. Now, mm -hmm. this is where we may part ways in some controversial issues that are around. But beyond around the fourth month or so, the fetus is developing its own biochemistry. And when you're talking about biochemistry, now you're going to talk about the relationship between folic acid or any form of folate, folinic, whatever you want to call it, and what you call methylation issues. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, there's a genetic predisposition based on mom and dad, whether or not there's going to be methylation issues, normal, over, under methylation, kind of depends on the genetic uh, signals that are given from both. In terms of folic acid after the fourth month of pregnancy, if there's a tendency for that child to be over methylated, Okay, it's usually because there's been an overabundance of folic acid. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, it's probably good up until about the fourth month. Beyond that, this fetus is developing its own methylation status. Okay, now what does that mean? 
Well, methyl groups, they tend to activate enzymes, hormones, proteins, and neurotransmitters. They Mm do. It's been found out through a lot of research that there is a huge tendency for autistic folk to be under-methylated. Yes. It has been going up over the last more than probably 25 years, anywhere from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in, oh, who knows, 6,000, 5,000, 4,000, all the way down to currently, really the statistics are saying that somewhere between 1 in 50, 1 in 37 kids is going to be on the spectrum. What is that? What have we done? This is not an evolutionary sort of developmental thing that is happening. It is something that we have imposed. So Mm -hmm. what is it? Sometimes prenatal vitamins can get a little overzealous in the the offering of folic acid in those prenatal vitamins. And if it just so happens that you have a child whose genetic uh, predisposition is towards undermethylation and you keep adding more folic acid, there tends to be more undermethylation. So you're asking, so what does folic acid have to do with that? Folic acid is what I would call a a double agent. Most of you have probably heard of double agents. You've watched James Bond. You've watched all the other stories on the the news and in the movies about double agents where you're working Mm -hmm. for both sides. Well, Mm -hmm. folic acid tends to be one of those. Okay. One of those folks. In other words, here's the deal. There's a, there's a cell. And in that cell, there's a nucleus. So you have inside the nucleus and you have outside the nucleus. Now, what folic acid tends to do in terms of this double agent category is that let's call it like it is. Folic acid is indeed an methylating agent. I will not debate that. It absolutely is. But here's the deal. So you have enzymes, hormones, proteins, neurotransmitters, all kinds of wonderful things that are being made by your cells. They are made, they are packaged. They are not in an active state until guess what? In the cytoplasm, which is the outside of the nucleus, they have to be activated. And they are activated by methyl groups. Where does that come from? Folic acid. So now that folic acid presence is going to methylate enzymes, hormones, proteins, and neurotransmitters to do their job. Wonderful. No problem. No argument. But here comes the double agent part. The folic acid scenario invades the nucleus. Mm. Okay. And I'm giving you kind of like a pictorial of what happens. This is not completely accurate because there's so many steps in between. Let's say folic acid makes it to the nucleus. The end result, this is what I want to say, the end result is that there's your DNA. That's where it lives. That's the Mm -hmm. whole point of the nucleus. And so once folic acid influences the DNA by demethylating the DNA, okay, and so now Mm -hmm. it's acting as a demethylator. And in actual fact, it's demethylating so many different things until... Okay, now we have demethylation happening at a higher rate than methylation is happening outside of the nucleus. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are, quote unquote, messing with the instructions of the original blueprint. The DNA that was there, in some cases, is being demethylated. That means changing the instructions for the proteins that are going to be made, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a problem. 
it happens that in autism, once again, the, the majority of um, kids born in the spectrum tend to have demethylation issues. Almost 98% of them do. Mm, and so wow. then you have to ask yourself, okay, is this really something that we're imposing upon our unborn? Mm -hmm. It's a real possibility. Most of the time, it doesn't really have a really strong influence, but when it does, it can be pretty profound. And this yes. is where you get anything from mild autistic tendencies, if you want to call them tisms, all the way to very severe, very mm -hmm. severe undermethylation. Why is that? Because you have really changed the instructions in the DNA. DNA produces proteins, enzymes, hormones, and over time, with each cell division, more instructions are being laid out for what's mm. to be made. And in the long run, you're kind of producing a situation with high risk of autism. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about it. <laughs> I love the double agent um, analogy. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a brilliant analogy because, again, it speaks to how folic acid or, like you said, whatever form, people want to argue that one is better mm -hmm. than the other. We're not going to get into that. But just, again, the fact that it's acting in these different areas. When I'm speaking with a patient, I say, there's a level where it's stripping away at the level of DNA. And we don't want that, obviously. We want that beautiful divine blueprint that we've all received. Every right. one of ours is unique. There is only one new basically. Like you said, it's that much more critical that we look at mom and dad before conception. I so love that you said that initially because I feel we can learn a lot about autism by simply looking at infertility rates and how they parallel one another and their rise over the last several years. One thing I teach my clients is how critical that period be around conception is. It's an important time for the epigenome as it's the time at which, like you said, the methylation marks from our parents' sperm and egg cells are basically like reset. and. You know, if mom and dad to be are unaware <laughs> that they that they may be undermethylated and they've got other nutrient imbalances, and then you couple that with a standard American diet devoid of nutrients, that can have a really powerful impact on their offspring because nutrients give our genes their marching orders. That term nutrient dense has kind of been a buzzword for quite a while now. People are probably sick of hearing about it, but what I want to impress upon people is that nutrient dense food contain a cocktail of nutrients that bind to basically our strands of DNA. Absolutely. And that forever changes how some genes work. And this permanently affects how the body is built. And one thing I want to share is that if you still don't believe what we're talking about, <laughs> there's a study by Dr. Matt Silver, and I reference this study a lot. It's called the Gambia Study. And this study, it's a decades-long study, and it proves a nutrient-rich diet prior to conception matters, and not just for mom, but also for dad. And he found that children conceived in the wet season where of course nutrients are going to be uh, more in abundance, right. are six times less likely to have died by the age of 65. And then children, of course, conceived in the dry season, they had a lowered life expectancy and were more disease prone because nutrient stores in their food supply were diminished versus what is available in the wet season. So again, the power of epigenetics in action mm -hmm. and how that can affect 
from generation to generation. And I think to your point, that's what we're seeing. When you sit down and you think about it, well, what's changed? It's like a huge neon sign that there's a lot of overdoing of folic acid coupled mm-hmm. with our food supply, our, our soils have lost a lot of their nutrient value, at least here Surely. in the United States. All of these things together and we see these rises. And again, I, I, I'm always looking at infertility rates too, and they really do parallel each other in terms of the numbers. So you got to scratch your head and go, okay, what's going on here? It's This is not something that's, to your point, a part of natural evolution. Mm-hmm. There's something going on in our environment. There's something going on genetically. Dr. Mm-hmm. Mensa and I have talked about in previous episodes, I believe is episode three, we mm-hmm. talked about that transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And that's essentially what we're talking about, kind of a fancy term for what we're, we're discussing right now, how these things get passed on and how from one generation to the next, if especially the diet continues to be very poor, uh, we see a weakening of of offspring, basically. Dr. Bowman, can we talk about now the Bermuda Triangle of autism? You mentioned high oxidative stress. We talked about undermethylation affecting most people that have autism. Mm-hmm. And then there's, of course, the epigenetic errors. Could you kind of, could you share with us what that Bermuda Triangle is? Um, when you talk about oxidative stress, and I've mentioned this before, it should not be a big whoop to do. What does that word mean? Oh, it sounds so complex. It really isn't. What you're actually doing when you have oxidative stress is producing a lot of human body rust, just what you think it is. Mm, Oxidation wow. is exactly that. So you're producing a lot of free radicals, and free radicals do what? Produce damage, which do what? Produce a lot of inflammation, which do what? Allow certain systems not to uh, be able to perform the way they need to. Enzymatic reactions, other things that have to go on, other physiologic processes can happen the way they're supposed to if there's a lot of rust and quote unquote oxidative stress going on. It just Mm -hmm. so happens that actually with autism, there's a lot of oxidative stress. It can happen at the very moment of conception and continue on until there's other forms of oxidative stress that are imposed upon that person, upon Mm -hmm. that child. So Mm -hmm. now what what do we really have here? Um, What I have to mention, which is extremely important, I have to talk about this uh, thought of uh, oxidative stress as it relates to, say, essential metals, essential nutrients, uh, certain things that have to be on board, the building mm-hmm. blocks of everything that you need depend on how you're able to incorporate the nutrients that you either are eating or supplementing. Uh, those building blocks must be there. If they're mm-hmm. out of proportion, if there's oxidative stress also present, that's going to be a real problem. And the major player that comes along, particularly as it relates to autism, is when we're talking about a word that a lot of people haven't heard of. And it's usually the word metallothionine. Now that becomes a real big issue. What is that? Well, first of all, everybody should have some. It is a mandate for the development of the brain in terms of how it's really supposed to happen and the chronology of how it develops. So what is this? And I have to mention this, this metallothionine, I mean, we are basically what we're made of, which happens to be things that we eat, things that are of the earth, 
all those things are kind of incorporated into our very being. There is also something that regulates all the minerals and metals that are supposed to be there. And if they are not there and they're appropriate percentages, things don't happen as they're supposed to. Now, in terms of autism, this metallothionine tends to be lacking in large amounts. Well, what is it doing? Let's talk about that for a minute. It's a protein like any other protein, enzyme, hormone, neurotransmitter that has to be activated. And since our kids with undermethylation have a hard time activating enzymes, hormones, proteins, and neurotransmitters, this is one that is actually included in that group. So when you don't have enough metallothionine, you can't regulate, you cannot regulate minerals and metals. Here's the example. I hope this is kind of a take home for most folks to really try to understand. Let's take a battery. How does a battery work? What is it? Obviously, there's something inside that battery where the, the electrons, where the minerals and metals that, is inside, that are inside of it actually help to give it power in terms of the energy that it can produce. So when you take that battery and you're putting it in the little toy, it's going to function like it's had, it has its own energy source. It's what's necessary. But that everything in that battery has got to be in the right proportions. And mm, from a lot yes. of work of um, Dr. Um, Pfeiffer, Dr. Walsh, they have found that, oh my goodness, the brain almost functions with the identical set of minerals and metals that need to be there to produce electronic waves and current and functionality. Wow. Okay. So metallothionine affords that ability, but in the minds of autistic children, it's not there. Mm. So what do you get? You get the toy that doesn't work quite right. If you try to take the battery, that's a little bit old or has lost its potency or the elements inside are not quite in the right proportions. And so you get a kind of sort of kind of sort of response from a toy. Well, in the minds of an autistic person, you have a half story of what's supposed to be happening. So if metallothionine, which is extremely important for brain development, is not around, as I mentioned earlier, the brain develops from the top down or from the bottom up. Guess what? The connections aren't made the brain does not continue to develop where it begins to talk to itself and integrate information appropriately. And so you have problems with speech. You have problems with language. You have problems with sensory processing because the meeting of the mind, so to speak, was is in suspended animation or has only partially developed or made. And so you get autistic tendencies. Metallothionine is also considered like one of our master antioxidants. Would Absolutely. that be accurate? Absolutely. It would make sense if that's not on board, like if glutathione isn't on board. Yes. Most people know what glutathione is, but mm -hmm. if, if metallothionine isn't on board to regulate these things, mm -hmm. then we're going to see a lot of delays. We're going to see a lot of deficits. Do you ever wonder what's going on inside your body? What's happening to make you feel cranky, anxious, depressed, or lethargic? What chemicals might be aggravating your ADHD, OCD, or disordered eating? I'd love to help you get a head start on identifying and addressing the underlying condition that's leading you to feel less than your best. Get started by taking my free life assessment. It takes five minutes or less, and it's a great place to begin understanding what your unique biochemistry might be. 
After you take my assessment, check out the corresponding cookbook I've created. Match your unique biotype to its cookbook with 25 recipes, including breakfast, lunch, dinner, appetizers, and desserts. You'll find a cookbook for each of the unique biotypes I work with. Zinc deficiency, copper overload, over and under methylation, and pyrrole disorder. You'll also find a meal planner to make this process easy and enjoyable. My recipes are free of grains, gluten, dairy, with the exception of ghee, which can be substituted, refined sugar, nuts, and soy. Remember, to get started, go to eat4.life and click the free assessment tab at the top to start your healing journey today. I also think of copper and we know that copper is a big part of autism as well. Mm -hmm. Would you mind speaking into that relationship? Oh, I would love to, because that's a great connector right there. Once again, copper is a metal. It is. It's a wonderful conductor of electricity. What is your brain? Your brain is an electrical chemical organ. Guess what? Any imbalance of copper that may exist in a brain that is electrical chemical, guess what? There's going to be problems if the amount of copper is overwhelming or if it's too little. Now, most of mainstream medicine is aware that there is an issue with copper called Wilson's disease. Overwhelming amount of copper that tends to be stored in places it should not be. That's ultimately going to cause problems in the brain and talk about a psychiatry and all kinds of issues that happen with it. Wilson's disease is definitely one of those that's going to go haywire if there's too much copper stored in the organs, particularly in the brain. And what Mm -hmm. are you going to get? Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Since your brain is an electrical chemical organ, copper is a great conductor of electricity. And so if there's high total copper or high percent free copper, your ability to process information are going to be skewed or simply the word is short circuited. So anything from an emotional response, anything that um, involves any type of either sensory processing or, or you're trying to figure out a math problem, but you can't do it because the circuitry is not cooperating mm. with you. Yes. It can happen if you have copper overload. And one yes. of the things that's really super important is that copper tends to be a big issue in autism. I'm going to say that probably about 85 to 90 percent of the um, autistic patients that we treat have um, copper levels that are very much so in excess. And so when that happens, you're faced with a challenge where processing information, the sensory processing issue is going to be a problem. Uh, Metallothionine happens to not just take care of copper, although it is a champion and helping that to normalize, but it also works with the other minerals and metals in terms of putting them in their appropriate percentages for things to work right. In other words, your copper top battery you notice that's interesting. Copper top battery tends to be in perfect balance when it's new and when it's potent and when everything is in in the exact proportion that it needs to be to function for that object that you're going to put it in. Same thing as with humans. There's a big relationship between minerals and metals and their appropriateness and, and how well we can think and function and process. Mm, beautifully mm-hmm. said. I appreciate you breaking that down because mm-hmm. I, it's important to me and I know to you as well, Dr. Bowman, that people understand 
what is really going on in autism? Mm-hmm. Because as you know, there are a lot of theories. We'll get into some myths in a little bit, oh, sure. but there are a lot of theories on what causes autism. Mm-hmm. And it's really such a multifactorial type of condition. Yes. And we have mm-hmm. to honor that. We have to mm-hmm. honor, and every autistic individual is going to be unique. I'm also undermethylated, as you know, copper overload runs in my family as well. It's impacted me differently than members of my family that, that also have similar chemistry to myself. I, I really want to stress, and I, again, you've done a beautiful job of explaining, you know, how, how wide ranging this is. Mm-hmm. You talked about what we call total copper and then uh, free copper. Free copper, yes. Right, mm-hmm. percent of free copper, which is copper that's not bound to a protein, correct? That's correct, absolutely. And what happens when it's not bound to a protein? That is the dangerous species right there because we get free-floating electrons that can do damage not only to your DNA, but to your tissues in general. You got a live wire. You got a gang member in there that's just going to cause havoc and do all kinds of abnormal kind of things that cause you more inflammation, basically. So if you've got your your lightsaber, so to speak, it's kind of like this lightsaber that's just slicing and dicing and doing all kinds of damage to you that you really um, are going to have a hard time overcoming, you know, if you don't have some type of antioxidant support to make that go away, neutralize that thing. And so that being said, in terms of neutralizing, how, how does that happen? Well, you know, Your body's wonderfully made. It really is. It realizes that there's some things that need to be put under control. Generally, if you're, and I have to say this, ceruloplasmin, very funny word, but it is indeed the protein that helps to bind this free-floating radical percent-free copper, okay? Copper is supposed to, and we need it. Let me not talk about like we never need copper. Oh, no. We actually need it, but we need it in, an, in a normal amount, not in an overabundance amount. And if you don't have any, that is, if you have some, I should say, that is actually um, not bound to its protein, then you're going to have some issues in terms of the damage that can be caused. And so then ceruloplasmin is the protein, once again, that binds free copper. If you don't make enough ceruloplasmin, you cannot bind all the free copper or enough of the free copper to uh, provoke normalcy, put it like that. And so then as it comes into our system and it comes in our system because of what it is we eat, it's around, it's a mineral, it's in the soil, it's in the food. There's some foods that are super high in copper. There really are. Oh, yes. (laughs) And and if you kind of eat more than your share of those foods, you may have some issues relative to what percent free copper an overabundance of it, I should say, can cause. And very often, even those kind of things are going to translate into panic and anxiety. Don't forget, it's a conductor of electricity. And when you have a brain that's full of conduction and electricity, which is what it is, that means that you can actually short circuit some processes. Relative to copper and percent-free copper, there is a balance that is appropriate and inappropriate. I so appreciate you breaking that down because people get confused by that. Mm -hmm. And then there's, of course, you know, a lot of misinformation about copper out there as well, which that's, Mm -hmm. we're not going to get into that in episode 10. (laughs) We talked a lot about myths. We talked about how copper affects women and the relationship Mm -hmm. between estrogen. So people can go back to episode 10 and they can listen to that and they can, you know, they can get a lot of great information there. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> one so thing, uh, you know, Dr. Bowman, one thing that I, I also, I just didn't want to make sure, I didn't want to forget to to mention, you know, there's obviously a lot of GI issues and autism as well. Yes, 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 and yes, yes, yes. going back mm -hmm. to metallothionine, we need mm -hmm. metallothionine to help regulate copper and zinc because copper and zinc also help regulate microbial activity in the GI tract. So I wanted to make sure and mention that and also whatever you'd like to share because we always see these days, I think most of our patients have GI information. Share. Yes, I want to share. But in autism, it's very acute. It is. You know, and let me kind of get back to metallothionine, which is, uh, granted, it's not the major player, the only thing in autism, but let me tell you really what it's responsible for. What I did is I pulled a little um, excerpt from um, William Walsh's research in terms of what it actually does. There's quite a few things, and then you'll understand why this particular protein is so extremely important. We're just kind of reading down the list here. First of all, it regulates zinc and copper levels in the blood. Extremely important. Okay, detoxifies mercury and other toxic metals. Now, development and functioning of the immune system. Development and pruning of brain neurons. Let me stop for a second and kind of uh, tell you what that means. If you have a lovely orchard, it is known among those particular farmers and caretakers of that orchard that you cannot just let a tree grow haphazardly. If you really want some good fruit out of that tree and, and it's just really directed towards the best fruit you can get, there is some pruning that needs to take place so that the efficiency of it and the, the fruit that develops is going to be the very best you can be. Same thing happens in the brain with early development. There will be some pruning so that certain pathways are going to be solidly straight pathways and not circuitous pathways so that they are very efficient in terms of processing. And that's what that comes into play there. Um, so there is development of pruning brain neurons. There's prevention. Oh, here's an interesting one. Prevention of yeast overgrowth in the intestines. Very important. You know, production of enzymes that break down, guess what? casein and gluten. And we yes. know that those are so very important relative mm -hmm. to sensitivities that are there in terms of uh, dietary elements. Yes. Um, response to intestinal inflammation, important. Production of, here's another one, stomach acid. You got to have it to break down your foods and to absorb Absolutely. appropriately. Taste yes. and texture discrimination. Uh, the hippocampus uh, function and behavior control. Well, we know that there tend to be certain antics, there tend to be certain stimming that takes place in the autistic community. Yes. And if, if metallothionine isn't around in abundance, those tend to be very dominant, or very prominent, put it like that. And mm -hmm. development of emotional memory and socialization. And that's pretty much where it is, but that's a mahload. It is. Mm. That's, that's a lot. Of what it yes. does. And it's, it's so, so important that we share this, especially with parents that are listening in. So again, they can understand the mechanisms by which these things are happening right. and what's going on. So I just, I so appreciate you breaking that down, Dr. Bowman. You know, I'm, I'm really curious about, and Dr. Mensa and I have talked about this as well, but Asperger's syndrome tends to be grouped together with autism, but that's not really quite accurate. Right. I was wondering if you could share with us just a few differences there and why I that will. is? I wish, I wish, I wish that they had never kind of lumped that in. I understand why they did it, but it's mostly because of lack of understanding. Um, they are two different things. They really are. There are some similarities, undoubtedly. There's mineral metabolism issues 
on both sides. With Asperger's, to me, the major difference is there continues to be intellectual development. And there's nothing wrong with having high level of intelligence, but there is some problem in terms of when you can't have a gray zone. There's yes. a problem with that because the yes. world really isn't black and white. There's all kinds of gray zones going on. And you have to be able to adjust. You have to be able to have an ability to transition. And when you don't have that, you can create an environment that's very almost impossible to live by. It really mm -hmm. is. Now, um, in autism, the similarities are that there tends to be a regimented scenario. I think that's really where the commonalities are. Mm -hmm, but with autism, point. there tends to be loss, if you want to call it of IQ, loss of intelligence. If there's nothing done about it, whatever level of intelligence you manage to produce tends to be a lifetime and bound to that unless you do something about it. And so there tends to be neurodegeneration. That's the word. The word is neurodegeneration. That tends to occur if it's really a true autism scenario, there's neurodegeneration, which simply means that there's less and less processing going on. There's less and less understanding of anything going yes. on. And mm -hmm. um, that would be the problem there, as opposed to Asperger's, mm -hmm. where the intelligence quotient just tends to abound. And sometimes like I said, regimented scenarios, but it's not beyond a high level of functionality. I mean, mm -hmm. the worst that comes out of that is that if your boss has Asperger's, you just might not like them. That's all. They're not going to bend, though. They're not going to bend. Um, and Asperger's, they work by protocol. It's protocol. They work by mm -hmm. algorithm. Their brains are algorithm motivated. They have mm -hmm. an answer for every single thing, but you can't that deviate from that. <laughs> You cannot deviate from that or else it's going to be yes. big problems. And then sometimes there tends to be decompensation when things are not going as planned. So a little bit of that with autism as well, except for there's a lot less ability to transition and adjust, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. put it like that. Dr. Bowman, why are outcomes best for children who get nutrient therapy before the age of four? Well, you know what? That just has to do with uh, brain plasticity. Since the mm -hmm. brain is in such a wonderful plastic state and we have an opportunity, at least before the age of uh, somewhere between seven and 10, depend on who you are, to uh, change some things, to reverse some processes, to actually uh, have to use the word flip the child kind of into what seems to be more of a normal type of existence with processing. It happens somewhere between ages of seven and 10. At some point though, the brain kind of says, okay, I'm going to enter into what I call my adult development brain. And whatever that is happens somewhere around after age 10. That being the case, we do have patients actually with autism diagnoses that are older, the oldest being around almost 60 years old. Um, what can mm -hmm. be done at that point is you're not really trying to score for IQ points at that point. You're mm -hmm. really trying to help with mood and demeanor and some processing that can be had. Usually at that time, the um, odds of actually, if you want to call it, flipping that person into normalcy, the, the, the um, statistics are not in favor of being able to do that. But get a kid mm. that's two, three, four, five, up to at least age seven to 10 or so, there's a lot of reversal, reversal meaning into normalcy that can really happen as well as help with things like emotional maturity, mood stability, being able to be sensitive 
to other people outside of self. But I guess you could say that's also a characteristic that's kind of shared between Asperger's and autism is this ability to have a emotional sensitivity that goes beyond you and looks at other people as well. That's important because we always want to encourage parents to bring their children in as, mm -hmm. as early as possible at the first sign of noticing anything and not waiting too long. Because to your point, there is kind of a cutoff period. Is it 12, 13? Is that about right? It just depends on who you are. You know, you can't uh, really put a fine I mean, you mentioned 710. Yeah. yeah, 710 mm -hmm. is like, oh, okay, if you can get in here before that, I think there's many things that we can do for you. Put it like mm -hmm. that. At least let's say 12. Beyond age okay. 12, there's this, I don't know if your brain has settled into its adult right. chemistry, if your biochemistry is, is beyond where we can really do some significant turnaround. It's, it's hard to know. And those become wait and sees. But there are things that yeah. one can do, though, because like anybody else, there can be the, the development of lack of confidence, depression, anxiety, mood and demeanor changes that will paralyze you from further development if you mm -hmm. can't get a hold of that and find an environmental, chemical and uh, environmental circumstances that's conducive towards uh, overall sense of well-being as well as processing and learning. Okay. Mm. I think that's really key. And to your point, we do have quite a few adult autistic patients. Mm -hmm. And and the beauty of the diet and the nutrient therapy is that we can help them feel better. Absolutely. But to your point, the brain has already developed. Mm -hmm. And some of the other things that maybe can be shifted when they're younger right. in terms of, of being able to hold a job and, and function more in the world, that gets more, you know, that that's more difficult. It's like language. It is. Yeah. You know, the best yeah. time to learn language is when you are a toddler. It is. That's when you mm -hmm. learn it. Even as you try and as an adult, yeah, you can do it, but it's not going to be as easy as if you were someone very much younger. Let's talk about what we call, Dr. Walsh would be proud to say, biochemical individuality and the environment imposed upon your DNA. And so I think every single case that you take, whether it's autism or any other case that's going on there, um, your biochemical individuality is gonna make a huge difference on how you respond to certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And though I have to agree with you in terms of, well, you know, we would be slapped to say that, oh, immunizations cause autism. Well, you know what? Depending on the biochemical individuality that exists or persists with you and environment that's imposed upon your DNA, there are risk factors that are very low and there mm -hmm. are risk factors that are very, very high. And you yes. don't know exactly who that is. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. for some kids in terms of let's talk about the vaccination scenario. So whether it's the a component of the vaccination or a cumulative effect of the vaccination, it's going to be hard to know. And for some kids, that will be the story as to why there seems to be some regressive development in how they proceed with their development, put it like that. For most kids, and we know this for a fact, for most kids, it's really not going to be an issue. But now let's put the multifactorial part of this in there genetic predisposition, cumulative effects of components of what may be a large influence of oxidative stress for that particular individual, 
the environment imposed upon their DNA, the nutritional uh, intake, whether it's dietary or supplemental, that has to do with whether or not they're at risk for developing this condition. And so, and there's other factors as well, that some of which we don't even know. But nevertheless, I have to stick with environmental and multifactorial issues that are provoked upon a person's DNA and predispositions that may or may not put them at higher risk of uh, developing an autism sort of scenario. Maybe that sounds like it's um, straddling the fence, but it's not. As Dr. Walsh would say, if you've met one person with autism, that's just one person with autism. And it has to be looked at on an individual basis in terms of who's at higher risk and who is not. Once you can identify where the risks are, though, once you can identify what the biochemistry looks like, you can jump on that, so to speak. You can actually do something to help protect and support their continued development versus continued decline. It's heartbreaking for us when we get a parent that says, my child seemed fine until we got them vaccinated. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you explained that and shared that with us because I want parents to understand that this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not diminishing what's happening, but there are other factors Mm -hmm. going on and we're already present before the vaccination. So, so I, I appreciate you uh, speaking into that. This process is so not easy. And parents, please understand that this is one of these things you're in it for the long haul. It is not an instant overnighter. Doesn't happen that way. And there's a lot of things that you have to look into. There's diet that you have to look into. Almost always gluten casein free is a good idea, even if you're not on the spectrum. There are things you need to look at in terms of the gut. There's absolutely gut brain connection. They are indeed connected. So you have to look at that. You also need to look at absolutely probiotics and things that are going to really move you in a good direction relative to uh, microbiomal health. You know, there's Mm -hmm. also um, other than the biochemical imbalances, which we usually test for, there's many things that need to be looked at and it needs to be looked at in totality, not just one things. And there are other modalities. You have to consider ABA. You have to consider perhaps RDI. You need to consider maybe cranial sacral therapy. You might want to consider things like acupuncture. There's so many things that Mm. if you are able, and it's not always that everybody is able, but it's a multi-modality approach to uh, the Yes. best possible outcome, you know, and yes. it's, it's a long haul kind of thing. But if you do it diligently, the payoff is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Many kids, as we call it, have been flipped into normalcy where you really could not tell that there was a problem that was recognized at age two, you know. Mm. Also keep in mind, too, that because this happened, there's a little bit higher risk for um, genetic predisposition and gene pools all, way down the line there. But mm-hmm. um, there's something that could be done about it. I, I don't want people to think that there's nothing that can be done about it. Uh, many times pediatricians and uh, primary care say, oh, well, there's nothing you can do. No, you need to try. As a parent, you're obligated to get something done. Yes, yes. So many pearls there. And Dr. Bowman, I I appreciate you speaking into the way healthcare should be and that it should be looking at many practitioners working together and for the benefit of the child and the family 
and many different approaches in the healing of that child and that family because autism affects all of us even if we don't have children Absolutely. it affects all of us mm -hmm. and our healthcare system right now again to your point is is still very black and white still very one-sided mm -hmm. and the whole point of eat for life is to give people hope and i want parents to know that their children can heal yes it's a process it does take time it will be a long road mm -hmm. we have seen some amazing outcomes and and again our genes aren't fixed like we once thought exactly. and that's where that epigenetics comes in and that's why again i love that study the gambia study mm -hmm. we know that prior to conception and during conception, I mean, throughout your life though, nutrient-rich foods are, are, are critical. It's why I do what I do and why I'm so passionate about what I do. And also working with couples because mom and dad need to be on board with a nutrient-rich diet. And that is not talked about in our world today. And I it's know. really frustrating for me, it's quite honestly. On both sides. You know, I so don't want the arrow to point in one direction in terms of which parent they think is culprit. No, don't. Yes. This is how we've evolved over time. I think the Industrial Revolution obviously brought with it some wonderful things. Mm -hmm. In other areas, it's kind of led us down this road of ultra super processing and there's no nutrients left it's all exactly. chemicals exactly. and we cannot thrive as, as, a, as a culture as human beings together mm -hmm. with nothing but chemicals and junk and toxins true that true that you know and we need to really stress that more and more and i think a lot of our young people some of them are actually buying into the idea others well you know it's going to take some time and we should still try to let them know that there is a better approach. <laughs> yes, yes, there mm -hmm. absolutely is. It is mm -hmm. a process. It does happen and it can be extremely beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Bowman, for your time, your wisdom. Thank you for blessing us today and our discussion about autism. Well, thank you very much, Sammy. You know what? It's a collaborative effort. It always takes a village, as they say. Dr. Bowman and I covered a lot of ground in this episode. My hope is that you have a better understanding of how autism impacts us all and how we can reduce and dare I say eliminate the occurrence of this disorder in parents-to-be prior to conception. I encourage you to support your friends and loved ones by sharing this episode. It is in sharing that we create community, eliminate guilt and shame, and bring about healing. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Make sure you hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player.